Thank you, Nick. Uh, good morning, everybody, and welcome. <laughs> welcome to our first theme talk on To Be a Pilgrim. Somebody who thinks she is my friend said, I know why you've dressed up like that today, Sarah, with bright pink legs. And that's to distract everybody from what you're saying. <laughs> not true. <laughs> the truth is that I'm disturbed to think that it's only Monday morning. I and I am already this exhausted. I don't know about you. So here's the deal. Anytime you feel really tired this morning, just look at the bright pink and it'll wake you up again. <laughs> We're going to light our chalice now, and each morning as we light our chalice, the young people are going to lift it up. We're going to lift up our chalice flame, this symbol of our worldwide liberal religious faith. We're going to lift it up for a particular word, concept, idea, and we're going to ask you to call out words in response, anything that comes to your mind. Let's see how we do. Sarah, do you want to come around here? Do you want to come around a little bit more? That's it. Make space. We lift up our chalice flame. We lift up our chalice flame for the beginnings of journeys. Excitement. <laughs> Excitement. Promise. Promise. as we travel together this morning. And I'm going to just um, talk through the structure of these theme talks because people who've been to summer school before will know we've, we've done different structures. Sometimes we get really erudite people who can speak for an hour each morning about a fantastic topic. They then go on and write a book about it. Then other years we have individuals who do an intense hour each day. This year we've come up with something new. You just get tiny little snippets. This is theme talk light. For those of us <laughs> for those of us who are challenged by by larger chunks. But my hope is out of theme talk light. Some Something quite deep will emerge. So let's start by singing the perfect, perfect hymn for this, which is it's number 10, and it is John Bunyan's famous To Be a Pilgrim. <laughs>
Linda is um, going to be my storyteller this week. She has a far better fund of them than I have, yeah. and I really appreciate you for doing this. That's all right. That's all right. Yesterday, Sarah um, mentioned, uh, and, and you had on the back of your order of service for yesterday, an opportunity to write down your own little wisdom for, your, uh, for the journey. And I'm wondering if I could get maybe three people who would share their own little snippet, short, brief, one sentence, not a lot of commas, semicolons, and such in it, just a brief little sentence. Anybody have a, their little snippet of wisdom for the journey? Anybody? Get enough sleep. Get enough sleep. <laughs> Patricia. Take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. My, are we feeling that worn out already? <laughs> Gracious. Pack light, have room to collect. Pack light, have room to collect. Brilliant. Brilliant. Escape. Escape. <laughs> well, I have a story about a little monkey on one morning who got up and he knew it was a morning unlike other mornings. He wasn't sick and he didn't have a cough, but he didn't feel quite right. And then he remembered that it was the first day of school. And his mother said to him, my darling, what is wrong? And he said, mother, it's the first day of school and I'm not sure, not sure what I'm going to do. And she said, I want to tell you three things. And if you remember these three things, all will be well. And if you remember all these three things, I will always be with you. She said, not every good ending has a good beginning. She said, to make a friend, you have to be a friend. She said, it's always better to laugh with someone than to laugh at someone. And Monkey felt much better as he got up and went on his way to school. And as he walked across the schoolyard for the first time, and he could see all sorts of creatures around him, hyenas and giraffes and baboons and just everything you could imagine there in the schoolyard. It was a large schoolyard. <laughs> As he was walking across, Baboon came running along backwards and ran smack into him, made him fall over and bang his nose, and he was very unhappy. And a few moments later, Baboon, running backwards, not being able to see anything, stumbled and fell over on his bottom and began to laugh and laugh and laugh. And Monkey came over and he said to Baboon, he said, my mother told me that not every good ending has a good beginning. And we can make a good ending out of our bad beginning. Let's say we laugh together and you be my friend. And they laughed and they laughed and they laughed. And Hyena came over. And he laughed with them. And, and he thought they were so very funny. And Monkey said to Hyena, he said, he said my mother tells me my mother tells me that it's better to laugh with people than to laugh at them. So let us all laugh together, and we'll be friends, and it'll be all right. And it was. The three of them continued walking along, and as they got a bit further, they saw that Giraffe was, was standing and pulling the branches 
from a very, very tall tree. He was pulling the branches down so that the smaller giraffes could eat some of the leaves, have a bit of a snack before they went in. But Monkey could see the really tender, tender bits very far, far up in the tree that giraffe couldn't reach. And Monkey said, I've heard that to have a friend, you have to be a friend. And I can climb very high up in the tree. I'm good at climbing. And I can weight them down so that then you can grab them and pull them down even further. I'll help you. And you can help others. And we can all be friends. And that's what he did. He was a friend and he made another friend. Owl flew over and lit on one of the branches nearby. And he said, you seem so very wise. How do you know all this? And Monkey said, my mother told me to remember these things. And that if I remembered them, she would always be with me. And so I have. And indeed, they all were friends. And they went to school and they had a wonderful day together. And when they went home, when they went home, they took all their new friends with them. For the people we love are all those with us. So that's the story of Monkey going to school for the first time. And I encourage you to remember your own little bits of wisdom, maybe wisdom that others have given to you along the path. I like to think of those little bits as the breadcrumbs that Hansel and Gretel dropped to find their way home, to find your way back to yourself and your heart. And as we start off this week, even though we already sort of did yesterday, so we continue to start off this week, um, hold on to those good things that you know so that the people you love will be with you and we can all be friends and perhaps laugh a bit. If you turn to the back of your songbook now and count down, count down to the fourth chant, we're going to sing this every day this week and my hope is that by the end of the week we will love it so much and be so, you know, know every note of it so well that we will be happy to improvise with it. You would be amazed what you can do with this particular chant. But today, we'll just sing it straight in that classic way of anybody who knows it, join in now and just see how you get on. There's only one little trick about this, that there is an extra trying to get home that, that we left out on this just to keep us all on our toes. And this is how it goes. Let your little light shine, shine, shine. Let your little light shine, oh my Lord. Maybe someone's down in the valley trying to get home, trying to get home. So let your little light shine, shine, shine. Let your little light shine, oh my Lord. Maybe someone's Let your little light shine, oh my Lord. 
suggests that anybody under the age of 21 now disappears because it gets still thank you very much and we'll see you later And so, fellow pilgrims, we set off on a pilgrimage, as so many people of faith have done before us. Such a journey is known to many, and yet I'll argue that each person's path is a path that is unique to them. Now, the actual setting off on pilgrimage has many potential origins. Do you know I've heard it said that Adam and Eve may have been the first human pilgrims setting out on a journey of discovery, a journey into the unknown. But you know, they didn't choose, did they, to leave that Garden of Eden. They were banished for their transgressions. No, no, I would say that a pilgrimage has to have an element of free choice about it. And if it wasn't Adam and Eve as first pilgrims, well then others claim Abraham who left that city of Ur with its many gods and set out into those wild desert lands where in the quiet he might hear the voice, the voice of just one god. And that prince, Siddhartha Gautama, who left the luxury of his palace to seek the truth of existence and whose footsteps as the Buddha later became a destination for so many pilgrims. He too, I think, was an early pilgrim. But do you know, when I think of possibly the very first pilgrims, I prefer to think of early humans with their animistic beliefs of a spirit in everything that existed. Not just those living creatures that they shared their world with, but also in the spirit of places themselves. Spirits of rocks and seas and mountains and rivers early humans placed their trust in shamans, the ones who held knowledge, who could travel between the worlds of matter and spirit, shamans who knew how to commune with the spirits of place and who could read the signs that they found along the way. Even today, shamanic practice recognizes the importance of both outer and inner journeying, and what is it to make a pilgrimage if not to set off on a journey that has both inner and outer dimensions? Now, in English literature, two great works have established pilgrimage in popular imagination. Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales and John Bunyan's Pilgrim, The Pilgrim's Progress. And from the latter, of course, we have the imagery of the hymn we sang earlier on, 
With words, I hope you noticed that it had been gently adapted to suit 21st century attitudes. But Bunyan's powerful imagery, created whilst in Bedford jail for his religious convictions back then in the 1660s, well, that imagery, that is there within us, I believe, today. The idea that at times in life an individual receives a call that cannot be ignored. A journey must be undertaken. Great challenges will be faced. The possibility of failure is truly there. Yet help is also available to those who cry out. And, with great effort, the goal of the celestial city will indeed be reached. Now, 14th century Chaucer, a far more worldly writer, he used the popularity of pilgrimage in the medieval world as a frame for his narrative, a way to bring people of different social classes together and for them to tell one another stories along the way from London to Canterbury. Yet Chaucer knows of the longing, the yearning for something that has people set out on such a path. He wrote... For in their hearts doth nature stir them so, then people long on pilgrimage to go, and palmers to be seeking foreign strands to distant shrines renowned in sundry strands. This longing is also known as the call to adventure, a call to adventure, a phrase used by Joseph Campbell, who did so much to bring ancient mythology into both academic and popular awareness once more. And it's a call that's also found in the structure of fairy stories that have been so well explored by Jungian psychoanalysts. Listen to these words of Campbell. He's a great writer. The call to adventure signifies that destiny has summoned the hero or heroine and transferred their spiritual centre of gravity from within the pale of his society to a zone unknown. This fateful region of both treasure and danger may be variously represented as a distant land, a forest, a kingdom underground, beneath the waves or above the sky, a secret island, a lofty mountaintop or profound dream state but it is always a place of strangely fluid and polymorphous beings, unimaginable torments, superhuman deeds, and impossible delights. It's Joseph Campbell. Hmm, well, unimaginable torments and impossible delights. It's a bit like life then. <laughs> but in real life, the boundaries are generally less clear, aren't they? And the cause to adventure, well, they may be many. But if we think of our own lives, well, for all of us, there will have been, and still will be, those moments when an impulse for change becomes strong, when a quiet longing becomes more insistent, and when we know in our heart of hearts that it is time to set out on a journey, be it an external movement or an inward exploration. And these times of transition in the lives of individuals make fascinating stories. These journeys of life make us who we are. 
And we, I think, are a little like Chaucer's band of medieval pilgrims setting out on a journey together this week. And that is why each day in these theme talks, I've asked one of our fellow travellers to come and tell us about some aspect of their life. And today I call on Jim Coriel. He's coming to join me on my journey. And the only thing I decided to say about any of these people is kind of where they come from within our Unitarian circles. So Jim is a member of the Golders Green Congregation and many other things besides. Jim, welcome. Thank you. And I look forward yep. to you telling these people your journey. Do you want to use that I and will. then it'll get recorded? I will. Thank you. Well, I've been invited by Sarah to talk about transitions in my own life. I think because I've had so many. Uh, I was a political activist for years, then a trade unionist, and now a person of religion. There's my changing spiritual outlook. First an atheist, then six years ago joining the Unitarians and a, as an agnostic and a seeker, and now a liberal Christian. Career movements... Well, I was a teacher briefly, then a journalist in newspapers, later in broadcasting, and that which was a bigger jump than you might think. And the geographic shifts, early life in South Africa, coming to Britain in 1974 as a young adult, marrying a British woman, and then in the early 1980s moving to independent Zimbabwe for five years before returning to the UK. So a lot of changes, and I'm sure I'm not unique in this, in this company. However, transitions don't necessarily lead to understanding. It's quite possible, as T.S. Eliot says, to have the experience, yet have missed the meaning. <coughs> but do changes carry meaning? And if so, what kind? Firstly, why all these changes in my own life? Were they driven by restlessness or fate? Perhaps both. So let's start with a bit of biography. I was born in South Africa to socially aware parents who were not religious, but as a teenager I went to a church boarding school where I was confirmed an Anglican. By the time I left school I considered myself an atheist and remained so for most of my life. I had a strong sense of social justice and joined the student movement against apartheid and continued with this in my early journalism but there seemed little place for white activists in South Africa then, and I joined a stream of contemporaries coming to Britain. I soon became active again politically, and my passport was confiscated by the South African authorities. I worked for the Morning Star newspaper in London and became involved in left-wing politics in Britain. Later, I had the chance to work in Zimbabwe for the Herald newspaper in Harare, where I lived with my young family, while continuing to work against apartheid. But we returned to Britain in the late 1980s, and quite soon afterwards I began to work as a journalist with BBC World Service. Although based in London, I travelled widely for the BBC, mostly in Africa, and I much enjoyed my 17 years there. But there was one snag. Because I was a broadcaster, a BBC requirement was that I shouldn't be active in politics of any kind. Largely because of this, I think, I moved into trade unionism. It became my political outlet, if you like. I became an activist in the National Union of Journalists, first within the BBC and later nationally as well. Yet about seven or eight years ago, I began to feel a growing spiritual need. This led me, after some searching, to the Unitarians, and I was encouraged to explore my spirituality. 
However, I was soon travelling a more familiar path as well. I began serving on my local congregational committee and later in national Unitarian structures. <laughs> and oddly, I don't find these transitions too difficult to handle. Left-wing political organisations, trade unions and non-conformist churches are quite similar. <laughs> they have in common a strongly democratic spirit, a general dislike of hierarchy, a passion for social justice, and you need to be able to sit through very long meetings, which go on and on, very tedious ones. The structures are often similar too. General secretaries, executive committees, commissions dealing with administration, work sectors, geographic regions. In my journalists' union, we activists were lay officials, and our basic workplace units were called chapels. Recalling those difficult early years of trade unionism in Britain with its links to the nonconformists. And then the people you meet the orthodox, the flaky New Ager types, the permanent revolutionaries, you find them all. In politics, trade unions, and the church, human personalities seem to repeat themselves. So it's all been quite easy then handling these changes. Mainly, yes, but the transition I've found hardest is the one between continents. In my case, the move from my country of birth and upbringing, South Africa, to England. I've been reading a wonderful biography of the poet who I think of as my all-time favourite, T.S. Eliot. His biographer, Lyndall Gordon, makes the point that to understand him fully, one has to grasp the persistence of American traditions in Eliot. Describing Eliot's move as a young man from the United States to England, she notes, however much an expatriate takes on the colouring of another country, native origins remain, of course, ineradicable. The word ineradicable has such a sombre, almost condemning ring. And yet I feel it to be true. I'd always thought of Eliot as a kind of natural Englishman, who'd fitted into English society easily following his move here from the United States. But in fact, reading this biography makes one aware of how difficult he found this transition, how much of an outsider he often felt, and for how long this persisted. And although Eliot did eventually fit into England and English society, there remained that American core, that ineradicable thread that Lyndall Gordon traces through his writings. Of course, one can question why it is difficult for English-speaking colonials brought up in the English language and apparently in an English culture to fit back into the old country, the metropole. But, in one's, but one's early years are indeed formative. The sights, sounds, smells, the light and landscape, the people and languages and mores of your upbringing all influence you. They form you. Those early memories remain wherever you are. They are the source of your emotions, your imagination, your creativity. And in my early years in Britain, I often felt disconnected, a stranger, as Eliot and other emigres clearly felt. I was keenly aware of what I'd left behind. In addition, after the ending of apartheid, I had a strong political desire to return to the now free South Africa and help build the new society. But we had recently returned from living in Zimbabwe and my family had settled back here. My work was in Britain too and this move back to South Africa was not to be, however painful this was. 
So, although this geographic change was never easy for me, I came to appreciate that life, like culture, keeps moving on. You cannot allow yourself to be trapped in your past, a past which is not true neither to where you came from nor to where, you are pres- where, you, where your present is. If you are living in England, you should not only accept this fact, but embrace it and all the experiences that go with it. We must all come to terms with the realities our transitions have brought us to, and so allow ourselves to be changed by these. Although there will always be ineradicable elements within that do not change. Most of our deeper experiences remain with us throughout our lives, love and bereavement, joy and desolation. But unless we remain open to the new, we will indeed have missed the meaning. For the significance of events is not in the transitions themselves, but in the effect they have on us, on how much we allow them to change us. Well, is there anything more I can say about transitions and meaning? There's one thing in particular I'd like to mention. About a month ago, I had an extraordinary dream about our family dog, our highly energetic and lovable Border Collie, who died a few years ago, aged 16 or so. We'd had him since soon after our return to Britain from Zimbabwe, right through our children's growing up. He was a great dog, and he lived to an old age, and he died peacefully. But in this dream, for the first time really, I felt this tremendous sense of loss for our dog, an almost uncontrollable emotion. And when I woke, I was stunned by the strength of feeling I'd experienced. I couldn't explain it to myself. Later, thinking it over, I realized that the loss I felt was not simply for our family pet, but for that whole span of years of close family life, when our dog was with us, when our children were growing up, all of us under one roof, they dependent on on us. A time when we as parents were needed through each and every day. This period's now gone, although our children, young adults today, do come back home quite often. (laughs) But I had always taken their going away with easy acceptance, almost welcoming it and joking about it. My wife, on the other hand, has often grieved over this loss and still does, and this seemed odd to me. But the dream made me aware that I'd been denying my emotions in a rather stereotypical male way. I had also felt this loss, but I didn't want to face it, so I buried my feelings until they burst out in a dream. I saw that I needed to acknowledge my own sense of loss and my changed role. Not for nothing do our young folk accuse me of treating them like children when I get irritable. This dream revealed to me once more that truth and meaning are not, simply, are not simply to be gained through change. For before any inner transition can take place, you have to be honest about what your real feelings are. That is the only way you can open yourself to change and all that comes with it. I think this is what Eliot is getting at in the final section of Little Gidding, the last of his four quartets, when he writes in lines which have become famous. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time.
So when we finally return to our origins, our starting point, it appears quite different because we ourselves have been transformed by our journey. It's often said there's an inexhaustibility of meaning in great poetry. And I feel there's much more that could be said about these lines. But let us take from them this one central meaning, that real exploration means we will be changed. Thank you very much, Jim. I'm going to invite you to spend a minute or two now in silence, just allowing those words to filter in and perhaps themes, themes in your own life to emerge.
going to invite you now in the spirit of travellers on a journey to actually find somebody near you and to have a conversation, to ask questions of one another, to find out something about the person next to you. You may be sitting next to somebody you know very well or a complete stranger and that changes the nature of the questions. But I wonder if there is something that has popped up in your mind from, from Jim's little glimpse into his, his own life and transitions. The, I, I was struck when I first read Jim's piece by the dream. The dream of the family dog and that, that theme of, of loss, how powerful that is in human life. I was struck by transitions and, and by the fact that I had never had the experience of moving from um, another country and what an enormous thing that must be for somebody. I found it hard enough moving from one town to another. That sense of, of disconnection at times in life came up for me. And that question that you posed, Jim, of well, what has changed me in life? I invite you now to turn to the person next to you and for the next 10 minutes to converse, to ask one another questions, to find out something about this person's life journey. Whatever feels appropriate to you both. Let's see if this will work numbers-wise. perfectly possible to have a three. <coughs> <laughs> just one or two people who have that amazing ability to synthesize that 10 minute conversation into one sentence with no semicolons. <laughs> Does anybody just want to pluck out some, some theme? Change is very hard, particularly internal change. I think That's a traveller speaking. It's a sort of cliche thing, but there is a sense of where, wherever you go, there you are. Mm. So, you know, when I was reflecting on being asked things about myself, you think, well, a lot's changing, but there's also a lot that doesn't change because wherever you end up, you've carried your own yes. very particular thing to it. Yeah, thank you, Tim. Yeah. I just think coming to Hufflow, although it's the same, it's different, you know, at the, uh, and uh, this is the exploration centre for me, mm. here, mm. and now, yeah. tomorrow, and yeah. yesterday. Thank you. And going somewhere else gives you a different perception of the self you were. Because you think you're, you think you're the same, but stand outside and you actually change your interpretation. 
Thank you all of you. Thank you very much indeed. Ah, such rich themes, aren't they? And this call, this call to adventure. It sounds so noble and exciting, doesn't it? It makes me think of grand stories and noble visions. Those, those special people, you know, who go out there and change the world. And yet for most of us, life, life is lived on a much smaller canvas, yet, yet nonetheless valuable for all of that. Our calls to adventure might be the decision to move house or to start or end a relationship, the taking up of a new hobby or enrolling on a course, the setting off on a holiday or coming to Hucklow, or deciding to have that conversation with somebody that you haven't yet dared to have. The call to adventure happens to us each and every day, I think, when we actually make that effort to get up and out of bed and set off, <laughs> set off into the unknown of a, another day. And the call to adventure, as I've said before, is not only an outer but also an inner journey. For these metaphors of travel and journeys and pilgrimages that we're exploring together this week, they're some of the key metaphors of the spiritual life. The American... Uh, he is a poet, isn't he? Linda Wendell Berry? Yeah, yeah. I just suddenly thought, is he a poet? Yeah. The American poet, she says with some authority. <laughs> Wendell Berry says it well when he writes that the world cannot be discovered by a journey of miles no matter how long but only by a spiritual journey a journey of one inch very arduous and humbling and joyful by which we arrive at the ground of our feet and learn to be at home now this is the mystic's path this is the path to rediscover our oneness with the divine. And I think that this is one of the most intriguing aspects of being human. We are these conscious, thinking, aware, reflective beings inhabiting, just feel yours for a moment, these, these bags <laughs> of skin and bones. <laughs> <laughs> these bags of skin and bones that are, that are our both delicious and pleasure-filled and frightening and pain-racked physical bodies. And we have our intriguing sense that there is more to all of this than just the material world we can touch and see, and yet the intangible spiritual realm is so shrouded in mist and mystery. How like those lands that Campbell describes as the place we are called to, the unknown lands. To the mystic, the goal of the journey is clear. It is to merge with the divine, to lose our sense of individuality, which turns out to be illusory after all. 
this is way beyond me now, so I'm just going to quote from somebody else. I don't know how many of you will have read the work of Timothy Freaky. He's the one who wrote The Jesus Mysteries, which I thought was completely fascinating and false. But, you know, you're just going to have to read it yourself. It's the issue of, is Jesus a mythic, a mythic being, or, or the historical Jesus? And, of course, Unitarians have an interesting history of their own with this. But I've gone to Timothy Freaky, who I think actually writes incredibly well at times about the mystic journey. So here's what he says. The spiritual adventure is an inner drama played out in the theatre of the world. It is our personal struggle to discover the impersonal oneness. It is a pilgrimage that we'll never complete, for it is ultimately our sense of being a separate self that stands between us and our goal. If we do not realise this from the outset, the journey of awakening can itself become a more subtle form of spiritual sleep. We may succeed in becoming more holy, but we will never experience the wholeness. Because spirituality is not about becoming a more spiritual person, it is ultimately about discovering that we're not a person at all. Without this understanding, spirituality may make our lives more bearable by helping us rearrange the furniture in our prison cell, but it will not set us free. Okay, that's Timothy Freaky. Hmm? It, uh, no, I would honestly. I'll, I'll make the effort to type it out, and you can have a copy of it. But as someone who is still busily rearranging the furniture in my own prison cell, I'm afraid I can only point the way. There are paths aplenty, if you wish to find them, that are designed for travellers who are called. One of the many fascinating aspects of modern life is, I think, the incredibly much more open access to esoteric knowledge and training. There have always been mystics. Indeed, I personally see them in a direct line developing from those ancient shamanic workers. But these people and these practices were hidden from the view of the everyday world hidden indeed from the mainstream religions to which they were linked. They were often disapproved of or feared, and they were periodically turned upon and blamed and abused for whatever was going wrong in society. So we're fortunate in that our access is easier. Hidden knowledge is now available to us, but possibly too available at times. For we are awash with information about spiritual growth. There are so many courses to go on, groups to attend, books to buy. We live in spiritually busy times. <laughs> but if we, if we take the mystic's path and set off to lose ourself before we've tried to understand ourselves we've missed a vital stage, I think, of the spiritual journey that's encapsulated in that ancient wisdom of know thyself 
and to thine own self be true. And to know ourself, we have to observe and reflect. We have to get to know ourselves very, very well. And that really is a much more challenging task, isn't it, than simply checking who we are in the bathroom mirror each morning. Who am I? It's a worthwhile question for pilgrims. And in answering it in the myriad ways it can be answered, we start to gather hold of the strands and the threads of our lives. We start to discern the warp and the weft that makes us who we are. Kierkegaard said that life is lived forward but understood backwards. And it's one of the treats, in inverted commas, of getting a bit older, is that there's more life to reflect back on. (laughs) And what will we see emerging as we reflect back? Well, we will see the personal themes of our lives, those personal themes that make us who and what we are. And these themes need acknowledging and understanding. And that reflection, I think, needs to be done very gently and with great compassion because none of our lives is easy. And some of our personal themes are very painful indeed. It's good to travel together and to share our journeys. But do you know, ultimately, we do journey alone. The story goes of the, um, the Zen um, uh, monk, Dao Jian, who asked a fellow monk to accompany him on a pilgrimage to assist him in his practice of Zen. And his friend said, well, I'll, I'll certainly try to help you in any way that I can, but there are certain things in life that you must do for yourself. Well, what do you mean? asked Dao Jen. And his friend replied, Well, do you know, my eating and drinking will not fill your stomach. And when you want to urinate, there's nothing I can do about it. (laughs) And only you can make your body walk along this road. And this answer opened Dao Jen's mind. And he set off on that journey alone. We are the heroines and the heroes of our own particular adventures. And though much of the plot is given to us, we humans are granted a remarkable ability to shape these dramas of our lives that are played out in scenes and in acts, in verses and in chapters, as well as in the earthy practicalities of these physical beings of ours. And we're going to have to wait till tomorrow for the next exciting instalment (laughs) of To Be a Pilgrim. (laughs) And I wonder if you would humour me and if Nick wouldn't mind if we could just sing again that Pilgrim's Hymn. Because I must say... The singing this week has been remarkably lusty, (laughs) and it's very nice to join in with. It is number 10.
So let us go now in peace, and may your hobgoblins and foul fiends at least be understandable to you. <laughs> <laughs>